0: Good morning everybody. I read a story from a woman named Mary Blackburn on Facebook this past week. She told a story about a particularly tumultuous bedtime put down of her three-year-old daughter. It went on for about an hour. Up, down, get in bed, out of bed. You've probably been there before. And after, like I said, about an hour of this, Mary had finally had enough of the yes, you wills, no, I won'ts, back and forth nonsense. She finally just said, Honey, you're going to bed. I don't want to hear another word about stuffed animals or anything else. We are done talking. Good night. And as she got up, getting ready to leave, her daughter sat up in bed with her hands on her hips and gave her just that scowl. And she said, Mommy, I do have one more thing to say, which of course she did, right? And so Mary said, what? She said, I forgive you. And she said it like a cuss word, which is not usually how you say that, right? It's not usually like an argumentative thing. And so Mary was a little confused. She said, honey, do you know what forgiveness means? And the little girl said, yes, it means you were wrong, but I'm tired of being mad. So I'm going to bed and my heart won't have a tummy ache. And that's really not too bad of an explanation when you think about it. I mean, forgiveness really isn't about the other person. It's about me and my decision to let go of something and move forward. It's how I respond to some sort of offense, and it's my decision to not let my heart have a tummy ache anymore, so to speak. That's forgiveness in a nutshell. And forgiveness is something that is so crucial to human interactions and relationships. It's why almost every major religion advocates for forgiveness to some extent and degree, and why health professionals across nearly every discipline agree that forgiveness is something that is crucial for mental and spiritual and emotional well-being. In our own faith, we talk about forgiveness frequently. We are people who have been forgiven, and we are people who are to forgive others. That's, That's kind of what we do. But for all this talk of forgiveness and why it's so important and so significant, it's still something that we struggle with from time to time. And I think that's because of two main reasons. One, it's just hard. We've been offended, and when we're offended, our natural instinct is to recoil or retaliate in some way, be that physical or some verbal exchange or just that cold shoulder, cut them off kind of a thing. We we have some sort of response that we just, we have to do. The other reason why it's so difficult Is honestly, I don't know if we know how to forgive sometimes. Like there's a lot of talk about the importance of forgiveness. I've heard, I don't know how many sermons about why we ought to forgive other people. I don't know if I've heard too many on how do you actually go about doing that. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Just this basic framework for how do we go about actually forgiving somebody. And to help us in this conversation and in this journey, we're going to continue the series we've been in for some time now called A Year-ish with Jesus. It's probably 10 months now we've been working through the book of Matthew. And we're just walking with Jesus, hearing what he has to say, and learning what does it mean to be a part of his kingdom and to follow him on his terms. And today we're going to finish up Matthew chapter 18. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn there to Matthew chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind Or, as always, download that FCC Mammoth app to your mobile device. Tap the Sunday button in the bottom right hand corner, and you'll find our sermon notes along with our passage pulled open, ready for you to engage with, take some notes on, however, you get the most out of this time this morning. So, like we said, we're talking about the process of how to forgive. And in our passage this morning, Jesus probably doesn't lay out a thorough framework, but a basic framework that we can use as kind of a skeleton to help us in this process. And it starts off by laying this foundation for grace. Forgiveness is founded in God's grace. It is grounded in our experiences of His mercy. And that's what we see when we look at the opening of this. Matthew chapter 18 verse 21 Says then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven, but seventy-seven times. So like we said, forgiveness is something that's been significant in in most major religions. Judaism was no exception. And even in the first century, there was a lot of discussion on forgiveness and how many times should you forgive people. And the rabbis in Jesus' day said, you ought to forgive somebody up to three times. That was sort of the cultural expectation. So when Peter says, should I forgive them seven times? He's already being exceedingly generous compared to the rest of his contemporary thinkers. But Jesus blows this out of the water. He says, no, 77 times, Peter. And there's a reason he chose that number. It's not just some random number. And I wanted to talk about it this morning, but we had to cut something for time's sake. So if you're curious, you come find me after church. We'll talk about biblical stuff. But anyway, Jesus, he blows this out of the water. And essentially is saying, we ought to be people who extend grace unconditionally. Rather than being some sort of like momentous exception that we look at and say, wow, that was really impressive. You're such a good person. That was very big of you to forgive that person and move on. This ought to just be something we do, like breathing. It ought to just be natural and normal. We are a forgiven and forgiving kind of people when we follow Jesus. So how do we make that happen? What's the action plan? Well, Jesus gives a parable to help explain this to us. Verse 23 says, "'Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king "'who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. "'And he began the settlement, "'or sorry, as he began the settlement, "'a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold "'was brought to him. "'And since he was not able to pay, "'the master ordered that he and his wife and his children "'and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. "'At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. "'Be patient with me,' he begged, "'and I will pay back everything.'" A servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. We'll just pause there at the end of scene one. So the picture is this. There's this king, and these kinds of stories were very common in Jewish teaching around the first century. We can look at Jewish literature of the time and see kind of similar parables. And this king figure almost always represents God, and the servant figures almost always represent you and me, people who are following God. And so this king, he's settling accounts, and he has this one servant in particular that just owes him this mind-numbing amount of money. Like, it's it's hard to even understand how much money that is. It says it's 10,000 bags of gold. 10,000, myriad was the Greek word. It was the, the, the largest number that they had a dedicated word to. After 10,000, you had to start making up words and putting words together in weird compound words. 10,000, myriad, that's the biggest number that they could conceive of in a solitary word. And bags of gold, more literally, it's talents of gold. And a talent was the largest measurement of weight that people used in that time. So you've got the largest unit of measurement, the largest conceivable number put together. That means that this is a number that is bordering upon like what people can even imagine. And just to put that in context for you and I today, we had a, maybe you heard, maybe you didn't, there was a, a Powerball jackpot this past week. It was a huge sum of money. Maybe some of you woke up one morning because you're, to, you're too tired to, to stay up late and watch the drawings like me, and you woke up to the headline that somebody in California had stolen your money, right? That's how it felt. But it was a jackpot of like $1.7 billion or something. And you think to yourself, wow, that's a lot of money. I'd love to, I'd love to win that money, right? We can't even conceive of how much money that really is. I looked it up, and when I did this this research, the jackpot was like 1.5 billion. So it's even more than this. But $1.5 billion is more than the national GDP of 14 entire nations. And if you were to take the world's four poorest countries and put their global, like their national GDP together, their annual GDP, it's still less than 1.5 billion dollars so in one lottery ticket you have won more than a few million people's entire efforts for an entire year put together that's a huge amount of money and even in saying that we struggle to really wrap our heads around just what a large sum this is and that's essentially what jesus is saying here with this debt it's just so mind-boggling And so when this guy comes and he can't pay it, and the king obviously knows there's no way this guy is ever going to pay me back in a thousand lifetimes, the king says, something's better than nothing, so I'm going to sell off you and your household and everything you own, which was a common practice in the day, and I'm going to recoup at least something. And the guy hearing this sees his whole life crumbling all around him and begs, even making this ridiculous promise, be patient with me, I'll pay everything back that I owe you. No, he won't. He knows he can't pay it. The king knows he can't pay it. This is an impossible debt. And yet we read that the king had pity on him. And that's an interesting word too. Because it shows up several times in the book of Matthew. A lot of times it's translated as he had compassion on him. It's a word that's used of Jesus in several instances. When he looks upon helpless people and he shows them mercy. And so this king, he looks at this servant who owes the impossible debt. He has compassion on him and wipes his slate clean and forgives him. And in a moment, gives him back his entire life. That is an incredible experience. That is a huge kind of forgiveness. And like we said, this parable... It's a story, not just about an imaginary king and a servant. It's a story about God and you and me. When we talk about sin, we use a lot of different words. Sometimes we talk about sin as rebellion, sometimes we talk about it as rejection. You know, we're rejecting God and his good ways and his intentions. A word that we don't often use is offense. And when we talk about sin as an offense, we're not even talking about it as an offense in impersonal terms, like a criminal offense the only thing offended in a criminal offense is the law. It's a code. It has no feelings. There's not going to be any relational fallout for a criminal offense. But when we talk about sin as an offense, there is relational fallout because we're not offending just some written code or some rules. We're offending a person, God himself. Our sin offends him. If you want to think about it, maybe you think about it from a parental standpoint. Maybe you had a lippy kid. Like you'll love him, you made them, you care about them, but they just, they get lippy sometimes. We had this experience a few weeks ago, my um, seven-year-old. He's, he's trying to push boundaries and kind of like find some independence in things. And I'm, I'm trying to be aware of that. And there was one night we were getting ready for bed, and, and so I gave him a list of things to do, like hang up your towel, put your PJs on, brush your teeth, and there's one other thing. Just simple stuff that you have to do, Right? And he's just kind of grumbling and shuffling. I could tell he's agitated. I said, well, what's, what's wrong, buddy? He says, I'm mad. I said, why are you mad? I feel like you're bossing me around. And this is usually like, it's kind of a madhouse to get ready because while he's doing this, my three-year-old's just all over the house. So it's, it's tense when we get ready for bed. So usually my response is, well, that's because I am your boss, so do it. But tonight we had a little more time, it was calm, so I thought, let's explore this, right? I'm like, well, let's talk about that, bud. Why are you mad? He said, well, I feel like uh, you're bossing me around, and you're wasting my time. (laughs) Because he has so many other things that he'd rather be doing. And like, again, I can feel that like it's boiling a little bit, but I'm tamping it down. I'm like, he's seven. He's seven. He doesn't know that that's disrespectful. So I'm saying, well, sorry, you feel that way, Let's talk about the roles that we have in the house and how mom and I make the rules and it's your job. God made you to follow and honor your mother and father and we have our rules for good reason. As I'm explaining all of this, he pulls one of these numbers. He's not wearing a watch. It's just some imaginary thing that he's doing. I'm sure he saw it on TV or something, but I know what he's doing, but I want him to say it. So I'm like, hey, bud, what are you doing there? He goes, you're wasting my time. And at that, this new parenting strategy done. (laughs) Like I'm out of the chair. I am over him. And like, well, if I'm sorry, I'm wasting your time. You know, you're free to walk out that door, get your own house, and get your own bed and buy your own food. But you're not going to do that as long as you live in my house. Blah blah blah. Read this kid the riot act. And admittedly, it was too much. But like, I was offended. The gall on this kid, my kid. Who I have given literally everything he possesses, including his existence. Granted, my contribution was smaller than his mother, but it was still there. Like, he's my kid who owes me everything, and you're going to tell me I'm wasting your time? How disrespectful, how offensive. But isn't that kind of our relationship with God? He made us. He has given us literally everything we possess, including our existence. And yet we choose to sin against him. We reject him and his good ways. We rebel against him. How offensive. And the worst part is we could never atone for it. There's nothing we could do to ever make it right through our own efforts. It is an impossible debt, if you will. And yet just like the king in that parable, God looks at us and he had compassion and he showed pity And He atoned for our wrongs. He forgave us. And it didn't happen with the wave of a wand that just made everything magically better. It happened at the sound of cracking whips and hammers smashing against nails and the cries of agony of the only begotten Son being murdered on a cross. That was the cost of our forgiveness. And our sin fell upon Jesus, who did not deserve this, because He actually was innocent, and through that blood, God paid for our sins. He cleared our debts. And our response is to say, Thank you, Lord, and to show that same kind of grace to others. And that's why we say forgiveness is grounded in our experience of God's grace, because we have been given far more than we could ever imagine or comprehend. But obviously, it can't just start there, it has to continue. Both the process and the story that Jesus is telling. And as we read, we find that maybe this next step in how to forgive people, it starts with God's grace. But forgiveness is extended through empathy. We see that in the next phase of the story. It picks up, I'm going to keep reading with me, in verse 28. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. And he grabbed them and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him be patient with me I will pay it back but he refused instead he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt and when the other servants saw what had happened they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened so we have a second scene here the servant who's been forgiven everything goes out and he finds a fellow servant a brother who owes him a hundred silver coins. And that's not a small sum. More literally, it's a hundred denarii that would have been about a hundred days wages. So it's not like a small debt that is owed here. Imagine somebody owing you about a third of your annual wage. That's probably not something that most of us would be easily just like, you know what, that's fine. You keep it. It's not a big deal. Like this, this is sizable. But compared to everything he's been forgiven of up to this point, it's very small by comparison. And you would think that that experience of such tremendous grace and compassion and mercy that would change him. Maybe he would have a little compassion and mercy on his fellow man, but that's not the case. Instead, he has this incredible display of callousness. He he chokes the guy. He says, pay back what you owe me. And it says that he refused. Literally, he was not willing. He chose To harden his heart. He chose to withhold forgiveness. And he chose to ignore the grace that he'd been shown in such a lavish display. And then we hear these words from this second servant. Almost identical to the plea that this first servant himself made. Be patient with me and I'll pay back everything I owe. It's this little auditory clue that we're dealing with essentially the same kind of situation. And yet, instead of displaying grace and forgiveness, we see callousness, this demand for repayment, even throwing the second servant in prison until he can repay, which obviously was not the right course of action, judging by the reaction of the onlookers who go and who tell the king what has happened. And you and I, we find ourselves in a very similar kind of situation every time we are presented with the opportunity to forgive, to either show grace and mercy to the extent that it's been shown to us. Or to harden our hearts and choose to be callous towards those who have offended us. as we said earlier, it's really tempting to withhold forgiveness. Because that retaliation just feels right. After all, we have been offended. We've been wronged. And so we feel this need to, to somehow react. To maybe verbally react. Maybe it's physical. I hope not. More commonly, it's some sort of relational uh, uh, turmoil, whether it be an argument or we cut somebody off, we give them the cold shoulder, whatever. It's so tempting to react and to retaliate in that moment, and yet we're expected to forgive. And sometimes the thinking is, I don't know if I can forgive because you're asking me to just sort of let somebody off the hook for their offenses and to just generate this grace out of the goodness of my own wounded heart. But that's sort of backwards thinking because grace doesn't start here, remember? It's grounded in God's grace. It starts with Him. We've already experienced everything that grace has to offer. We've been forgiven this full and lavish amount. Our job is not to miraculously generate some goodwill in our hearts. Our job is to just get out of the way and let God's grace flow through us to be experienced by other people. And even in saying that, we might be tempted to say, I don't know if I can do that. And here's where the empathy comes in. It's important that we remember we are not that different from the people who have offended us. We are not necessarily the good guy. They're not necessarily the bad guy. Because at the end of the day, they sinned against us and offended us. But how many people have we sinned against and offended? How many people have we wounded through our actions? And even if we did manage to walk through this life without offending a single soul, our sin has offended God himself. We're really not that different from the people who offend us. We all need grace. We all kind of stand in the same boat when you think about it. It's kind of like the movie The Breakfast Club, came out in '85. If you haven't seen it, I don't really think you're missing much, but some people really like that movie. It's about this group of teenagers. Uh, there's five of them at high school, and they all have to go serve a Saturday detention together. And they all come from different stereotypical backgrounds and, and cliques. You got the, the jock and the really stuck up girl and the troublemaker and the nerdy kid and the girl that's just crazy and you know, and they're all stuck together in this room and, and they don't get along. Like the stuck up girl hates the jock and the jock hates the troublemaker and the troublemaker hates everybody, and, and they all are just convinced that they're all just so very different right? But over the course of the movie, what they find out is they're not different at all. They all have the same struggles, the same insecurities. They're all just trying to make it through life and navigate it, its complexities and, and get out alive on the other side. And it's a really good metaphor for life in general, really. We, we all have the same struggle. We all have the same insecurities. We're all just trying to navigate life and its complexities And try not to get hurt or hurt too many people as we figure it out. But inevitably we do. We sin. We mess up. We hurt people. And God's grace is lavish. It is abundant. It is fully poured out upon us because of the grace of Jesus. And if we're all kind of the same and I can be forgiven, what does that mean for everybody else? Well, it means they can be forgiven too. It means they're just as deserving of grace as I am. They're just as needing grace as I am. We're really not that different. And that's why I say the key to extending forgiveness is empathy. Remembering that for all our differences, we're pretty much the same at the end of the day. And we really do share this same struggle. And if I want grace, if I want forgiveness, man, I, maybe I ought to be extending it to other people in the process. And there's a flip side to that too. If somebody else is unforgivable... If there's no way they can be forgiven of what they've done, and we're pretty much standing in the same boat, what does that mean for me? It means I'm pretty much unforgivable, too. And that's actually Jesus' point of this whole parable, if you want to keep reading with me. Look at verse 32. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Because the servant withheld grace from others, forgiveness was withheld from him, ultimately. Because we're all in the same boat. We all have the same struggle. We all have the same issue. And at the end of the day, we all need forgiveness. If I can be forgiven, so can you and everybody else. And if there's someone in my life that cannot be forgiven, well, maybe I can't either. Empathy. Identifying with those who offend us. Remembering we're both just people trying to figure this out. That's the key to extending forgiveness. But there's a big difference between working it out in our minds and then actually forgiving somebody. And that's where this process wraps up. Forgiveness is accomplished through action. It's grounded in God's grace. It's extended through empathy. But it's accomplished through action. Because forgiveness and unforgiveness are both active choices. They are decisions that we make. You look at the parable. The king, he didn't just in his mind forgive that servant's debt. He actively said, your debt is cleared. The unmerciful servant, he didn't just act like... Passively unforgive. He, he actively choked a guy and said, "Pay me back what you owe." There is a decision here, to forgive or not to forgive. And we're even reminded about this in the social sciences. Uh, there's a man named, or man, sorry, a woman named Karen Schwartz, and uh, she's way smarter than I am. She's got I don't know how many degrees, but she works at Johns Hopkins University. She's a psychologist, psychiatrist, counselor, super smart lady. Here's what she has to say about it: Forgiveness is not just about saying the words. It is an active process in which you make a conscious decision to let go of negative feelings, whether the person deserves it or not. Or if I could summarize, forgiveness means you were wrong, but I'm tired of being angry, so I'm going to bed so my heart doesn't have a tummy ache anymore. I told you, she's a smart little girl. And that's basically forgiveness, It is the choice, not just to to let go of some sort of hurt or, or negative feelings or ill will that we may have towards somebody. It's a choice to not have a heart tummy ache. It's a choice to experience freedom for ourselves. At the end of the day, that's the healthy thing about forgiveness. We decide to be free. And this kind of decision, this kind of choice, it has to be followed up by action, I don't know how many times this has happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to you too, where you in your head, you think, you know what? I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to fix this thing on the house. I'm going to write out this letter. I'm going to make that phone call. I'm going to do this. And you decide in all honesty and earnestness, this is something you're going to do, but you don't write it down. And you wind up never doing it. And that house repair you were going to do six months down the road, it's still not done. And that phone call that you were going to make six months later, you still not made it. Because what started in your brain stayed in your brain and it never materialized in the real world. Maybe you've done that before. If you haven't, give it time, you will. Here's what I've found I got to get it out of my head. I got to make it more than just words in my mind, and I've got to bring it into reality. I got to write it down. I'm going to make a note, right? Or I got to put it in a note in my calendar app. Or what I do a lot is I write it on a post-it and I smack it on my bathroom mirror. Like, I got to do something to bring it into reality and to make it real. There's some action that's necessary. And the same kind of thing is true with forgiveness. It's so easy in our minds just to think, you know what, I forgive that person and move past it. But words in our mind, unless they manifest in reality with action, are just going to stay words in our mind. And that's why we have to bring them into reality, ideally through a conversation with the person. Ideally, to sit down and say, Here's what happened, here's how it made me feel, or how it hurt me, but I'm tired of hurt, I forgive you. Now, I realize sometimes that can't happen. Sometimes it's distance, sometimes a person may be dead. Sometimes there's some other factor at play. For whatever reason, we just can't sit down with the person face to face. That doesn't mean words get to stay in our mind. Write it down get out a journal and write, here's what happened. Here's how it made me feel. Here's how it hurt. But I'm forgiving. I'm letting go. Amen. Or if maybe that's, maybe find a third party, a trusted and confidential individual that you can sit down with and say, here's what happened. Here's how it hurt. Here's what I've dealt with. But I'm letting go. I forgive. Something to bring it into reality, to make it more than just words in our mind, because forgiveness is accomplished through action. Now, anytime I talk about forgiveness, inevitably, there's some follow-up questions that people have, and they ask me in in the lobby or whatever. What if I forgive somebody, but they don't apologize? What if I forgive somebody, but they don't accept? What if I forgive somebody, but the relationship never heals? What if I, I forgive, but like nothing gets remedied? And all of these questions are really focused on how somebody else responds, but that's not what forgiveness is about. Forgiveness isn't about how the other person handles it. Forgiveness is about me and my decision to extend the grace that God has shown me and my decision to let go of offenses and wounds and my decision to be free, to quit trying to wield hurt as if it's some sort of weapon that will impact somebody else and to just take off the shackles and be free. It's about my decision. That's actually a very biblical idea. There's a passage I share with people all the time. It's Romans chapter 12 verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It doesn't say as far as it depends on somebody else and their reaction to your words. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Because you are the only person that you are responsible for. I can't control somebody else's actions. I can't control what their heart does. I have no responsibility for how they hear this apology or how they hear this forgiveness and how they respond. I can't control me. I can control my heart. I can choose to be faithful and extend grace to the extent that it's been shown to me. And that's all God asks of us. So as far as it depends upon you, forgive, let go, empathize, take action. And you've done everything you are called and capable of doing. And none of this talk of forgiveness, by the way, minimizes offenses, and none of it dismisses legitimate hurts that we experience in our lives. Sometimes that's our hesitancy to forgiveness, is just to assume I'm letting somebody off the hook because it's really not that big a deal at the end of the day. No. If we look at the parable, a hundred silver denarii, that wasn't a small debt. That's not a, a sum of money that most people can just shrug off and say, eh, Whatever. But compared to what the servant had experienced, it was comparatively small. And sometimes we are tempted to to kind of flip that around and think, man, yeah, God has forgiven me because my sin is not that big a deal. But this thing that I've had to deal with, these words they said to me, that thing they did to me, I just don't know about that. But that minimizes what Jesus has done for us. To think my sin was not really that big a deal. Surely God can forgive me. But this sin that I've experienced is so much bigger. That sure throws so much shade on Jesus and what he's done. Because he died for our sins. Our sin was not some small trivial matter. He had to lay down his very life. That's the only way it could be atoned for. Our sin is serious business. And yet God forgave. He forgave fully. He forgave completely. He forgave willingly. And all he asks is that we reciprocate. That we don't let his grace stop with us and let our hearts become hardened and dam up the grace and forgiveness that he's shown us, but rather we open the floodgates and we just let it flow through us into the lives of those who desperately need forgiveness themselves. Because when we become extensions of God's grace, when we allow his forgiveness to be experienced in the lives of others, well now we're showing the world what Jesus came to do. Now, not only are we helping ourselves, but we are testifying to the world what they desperately need to see. And so I would encourage this church, don't just talk about how significant forgiveness is. And don't just talk about, you know, I'm going to forgive this person. I would deeply encourage you to actively engage in forgiving someone, remembering that it's grounded in God and what he's done for us. That it's extended through empathy, because we're all pretty much in the same boat here. And that is accomplished through action actually having the conversation and bringing it from words in our head into the real world. And it's through that that we testify to the goodness of Jesus and what he has done in our lives. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the mercy that you show us each and every day. And we probably will never understand the grave offense of our sin, but I thank you that we don't really have to because we've been forgiven. What we do want to understand is the depths of your love and the depths of your compassion and your mercy so that we can better reflect that in our lives as we forgive others. As we show mercy and compassion and forgive the same way that you've forgiven us, we pray that you are blessed, that your name be held high, that we be recognized as faithful followers of Jesus, and that our relationships, whether they heal or not, Father, that they be touched by your grace and that it be honoring to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we enter into a time of communion, I don't think we can just transition from a discussion about forgiveness and how it needs to be active and then meet around the table and just think to ourselves, well, I'll just pray because I need forgiveness too. There's a little more to this. And the Apostle Paul even brings this up in the book of 1 Corinthians. He's writing to a church that has a lot of issues. And one of the most offensive issues is that when they meet around the Lord's table for communion and for their communion feasts, they're very divided. And they make all the poor people sit in one room, and they get the scraps of whatever is left over because all the rich people have gotten together early and just had their fill and maybe even a little bit tipsy on communion wine. It's just this blasphemous display, and there's division, and there's disdain, and there's distrust. The relationships are all a mess. So here's what Paul writes to them, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm sorry, chapter 11. What we do is we meet around the table and we partake of the bread and the juice. We are making a proclamation of what Jesus has done. He laid down his life to forgive our sins and to buy us grace and mercy and to wipe out our impossible debt. But that's not all he did through that cross. He brought us into God's family and he wove us into God's people and he included us in God's community. He knit us together as brothers and sisters in this family of God. And we proclaim all of it. That's why we meet together around a table. That's why we pass the cups to one another. Whenever we've had communion stations, that's why we encourage pray together. Because this is very much about the family of God and what God has accomplished for His people through Jesus. You can see the relational nature in this. And that's why Paul goes on to this church in Corinth and to us today. For whenever you eat this bread... Oh, sorry, we read that. So then... Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and they drink the cup. And a lot of times in in the past, I've heard it taught that, hey, you need to examine your heart. You need to confess your sins before the Lord, because that's what that means. And certainly we do want to confess before the Lord and give Him thanks for what He's done. But Paul's not writing to individual people. He's writing to a community of people. He's writing to a church in which there are fractions and divisions, where there's bitterness, where there's hurt, and an unworthy manner would be to partake of this feast, this community family meal together with so much hurt in the same room. That's offensive to what Jesus has done. So when he says search your hearts, I think it's very much appropriate to think maybe he means let's show some forgiveness and some grace. So I will encourage you this morning as the emblems come around and you partake of the body and the blood of Jesus, take a minute search your heart and ask yourself, is there somebody I need to forgive? Is there some offense I need to let go of? And is there some grace that I need to show to a brother or sister in Christ? Because that is far more honoring to Jesus than partaking of juice and bread. To honor what he did in action by emulating him and following his example. And with a clean and upright heart, with grace extended. Partake of these emblems and give thanks. Give thanks for the grace that he has shown you. Give thanks for the family that he has knit you into. And give thanks for the hope that we have that someday he is returning to set all things right and make all things new. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus and the mercy that he shows us and the price he paid to purchase that grace. And I pray that it wouldn't stop with us. But in this moment, you would search our hearts and you would bring to the forefront of our minds those whom we need to extend grace to. And I pray that we would have a real opportunity to do everything we talked about this morning, to empathize and with action proclaim to you out loud, I forgive, to let go of the offense and to extend the mercy that you've shown us. And with forgiving hearts, we want to honor Jesus and what he's done. And by living according to his example and his teachings, we want to praise him. That's our hope. So thank you for showing us the way. Thank you for teaching us how to follow. And may your spirit guide us as we walk along this road. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.